You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. First Kings chapter 18. Go ahead. You've already turned there. Like I said, we're in a series right now studying through First and Second Kings. It's called Desiring the Kingdom. And in this series, we're looking at the failures of human kingdoms and human kings in the past. And as we do that, we call it Desiring the Kingdom because this stirs up within us a desire for the eternal kingdom and the eternal king, Jesus Christ. And so as we are studying this, we've come to what I consider one of the most exciting parts of these books, and that is the life of the prophet Elijah. The life of the prophet Elijah. We've been now two weeks in his life, and now we're in chapter 18 where where things start to get really exciting. So let's bow our heads and pray as we get into God's word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it speaks through all ages of time. Lord, it is absolutely relevant. And Lord, we want to receive everything that you want to speak to us through it. So Lord, give us, we ask, receptive hearts. Lord, receptive ears, receptive minds, and may we put these things into practice. May we apply them to our lives. Lord, you know where we're at today. You know what we need. Lord, you know areas where we need to be challenged and stirred up. Maybe we need to be comforted and encouraged. Lord, thank you that you minister to us in all these ways through your word. So Lord, may we hear your word and may we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you guys, have you ever had a time in your life where you felt like you were stuck? Right? You're stuck. You weren't moving forward. You weren't making a lot of progress. Maybe you've had a time in your life where you felt like you were doing a lot of things, but you weren't making a lot of progress. Your life kind of felt like you were on a stationary bicycle. You're spinning your wheels, and you're getting all sweaty and worked up, but you're not actually getting anywhere. That can be a really frustrating experience. Sometimes I have that experience. I'll come home at the end of the day, in the evening, and my wife, Rosemary, will be like, what did you do today? And I'll be like, I don't know, but I am completely exhausted. And I was just slammed all day long, but I didn't really, I don't even know if I accomplished anything at all. Well, in our study today, Elijah the prophet, he asked the people of Israel a really pressing question, which I think we would do well to ask ourselves this question as well. Here's the question he asks them. How long will you continue limping along? How long will you continue limping along? And we're going to see in this some of the things that cause us to limp along in life and in our relationship with God. But here's the good news. We're also going to see a solution. We're going to see a way forward, a way to get unstuck, and a way to be making progress. The title of today's message is The Cure for Your Limp. The Cure for Your Limp. And here in the beginning of chapter 18, Here's our sentence. So if you guys have been with us the past couple weeks, you know what we do. I'll give you a sentence that summarizes what this text is about. And then as we study the, as we go through this sentence, we're going to use that as our outline for studying the passage. And then later on today, when you go and somebody asks you, hey, what'd you guys talk about at church? Instead of saying, I don't know, he was talking about the Bible or something. You can tell him there, there was this, here, here's what we talked about. You can memorize this sentence or you can write it down. You can take a picture with your phone and then you'll remember. Uh, and so here's our sentence for the day. As Elijah confronts King Ahab, we're challenged to consider the excuses which cripple us and the Savior who lived wholeheartedly for us. 
Okay, so we're going to walk through that sentence and break it down as we study this passage, all right? As Elijah confronts King Ahab, chapter 18, verse 1, begins with these words. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Guys, these were dark days in the kingdom of Israel. At this time, the people of Israel were caught up in the worst kind of idolatry. They were worshiping pagan gods. Specifically, they were worshiping the gods Baal and Asherah. Baal and Asherah. Now listen, Baal was thought to be the god who controlled the weather, particularly the rain. Now if you are a farmer in the Middle East, rain is more valuable than gold. Right? The more rain you have, the more crops you produce, which means the more prosperous and wealthy you become. So the people wanted to worship Baal, the god of rain, because they wanted the wealth and prosperity that would come as a result of having rain. One of the ways, though, that Baal was worshipped, one of the primary ways, was through the offering of human sacrifices, and not just any human sacrifices, child human sacrifices. People would literally lay their children on an altar and kill them in order to please Baal so that he would send rain upon the earth so that they would be prosperous and wealthy. They felt like that's the price we have to pay in order to be wealthy. Now, that was Baal. Now, Asherah was the goddess of sensuality and physical pleasure. And the worship of Asherah consisted in all kinds of lewd practices. So it was the desire for wealth on the one hand and the desire for sensual pleasure on the other hand that led the people to worship Baal and Asherah. You see, not only were Baal and Asherah, not only were they false gods, but these false gods were worshipped in ways that were detestable and immoral and destructive and inhumane and harmful. In other words, these weren't just false gods, but you could even go so far as to say that they were demonically inspired. And the two people in Israel who did the most to promote and encourage the worship of Baal and Asherah were King Ahab and Queen Jezebel themselves. The king and the queen of Israel, they not only promoted it, we're told here in, in chapter 18, a little bit later on, that there were 400 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah who were on the national payroll. They were paid. They were government employees. This was a state-sponsored program of promoting this kind of pagan worship and making this become the national religion of Israel. And not only did they promote it, not only did they sponsor it, but as we're going to read, Jezebel and Ahab, they actually, they persecuted those who continued to worship Yahweh, the true God, the God of the Bible. And it was into this terrible, dark situation that God sent Elijah the prophet with a prophetic word to speak to King Ahab. And we saw that back in chapter 17. Here was the message. Elijah came to Ahab and he said, God sent me to tell you this. It is not going to rain again until I say so. It's not going to rain anymore. Now remember, Baal is thought to be the God who provides the rain. So this is a direct challenge. This is a poke in the eye to the God Baal, supposedly the God of rain. But also understand this led to a drought, which absolutely crippled the economy and the life of the nation of Israel. God's purpose with sending this, with allowing this, was to get the people's attention so they would see and recognize the error of worshiping Baal, and so they would turn back in their hearts and worship Yahweh. Well, let's just say this. Ahab 
wasn't very receptive to this message that Elijah brought him. And he wanted to kill Elijah. That was his solution. I've got to kill this guy. And so after Elijah delivered this message, he ends up becoming a fugitive. He's on the run, running for his life, hiding out as Ahab is looking for him and wanting to kill him. And that went on for three years. For three years, Elijah lived in hiding, hiding out from King Ahab. And for three years, it did not rain in Israel, not even a single drop drop. But now, after three years, God speaks to Elijah and he says, look, Elijah, the time has come. The people have suffered enough. Now I'm going to send rain on the earth. So he says, go, show yourself to King Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So verse two, Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Guys, listen, for Elijah to do this, for Elijah to go and show himself and present himself before King Ahab, he's taking his life in his hands. This is a man who wants to kill him. And you got to wonder, you got to ask, where does somebody get the courage and the faith to obey God in a situation where they're taking their life in their own hands? Might I suggest to you that the courage and the faith that Elijah had to go and obey God, even in this, where did it come from? I believe it came from the fact that Elijah has experienced and seen God's faithfulness and God's power providing for him over the course of these past three years that he's been in hiding. You could put it this way. God's faithfulness in the past gave Elijah confidence in the present. God's faithfulness in the past gave Elijah confidence in the present. Listen, I don't know what kind of challenges you are facing in your life right now. Maybe there are financial challenges. Maybe there are relational challenges. But I want to encourage you in this way. Look at Elijah and, and do this. Look back at God's faithfulness. Consider and remember God's faithfulness to you over the course of your years. The ways that God has provided for you. The ways that God has been there to take care of you when you needed it. And as you consider God's faithfulness over all these years, let that past faithfulness give you present confidence in his ability to take care of you and his love for you, his concern for you. Okay? So now let's continue in verse 3. Ahab called Obadiah who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Now you might hear that name, Obadiah, and you might be wondering, hey, is this the same Obadiah who wrote the book of Obadiah that's found in the Old Testament? The answer to that question is no. This is not the same Obadiah. How do we know? Because the, the book of Obadiah was written about 300 years after the death of King Ahab. So this is a different Obadiah. And guys, uh, frankly, if you look through the Bible, here's what you'll find. There are 13 different people named Obadiah. It was like a super popular name back in the day in Israel. It's kind of like uh, one time I was visiting some friends in California. Somebody heard that I was from Colorado and they asked me, hey, do you know a guy in Colorado Springs named Mike? And I was like, yes, I do. I know about 30 guys in Colorado Springs named Mike. So Obadiah, guys, it was like the Mike of ancient Israel, right? And what it meant was it means worshiper of Yahweh. This guy, Obadiah, this particular Obadiah, he was a high official in King Ahab's government administration. He worked in the government, and yet it says that he feared the Lord greatly. He was a believer. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a second, how could a true believer ever work for somebody as evil and corrupt as King Ahab? 
Shouldn't he have taken a stand? Wouldn't that be the right thing to do? Take a stand and say, you know what, Ahab? You can take your job and you can keep it. I'm out of here, right? And to quit his job. Well, look at what it says in verse 4. It says that when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Here's what that means. Obadiah used his position in the government. He used his influence and his position in order to save the lives of a hundred prophets of the Lord. You know, we see other examples of this in the Bible, of godly people who worked for very ungodly people. But rather than quitting their jobs, they chose to stay in those places in order to influence others and do God's work and do good through their jobs in those places. Think about Joseph, who worked for Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Think about Daniel, who worked for King Nebuchadnezzar and then King Darius. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul talks about about uh, in Rome, there were believers who worked in the household of Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero, right? See, what we learn from these examples is that it is possible to work for ungodly people without compromising your convictions, without compromising your faith. Jesus told his disciples, he said, you are the light of the world. And he said, you are called to be the salt of the earth. And you know what God loves to do with that light and that salt? He loves to sprinkle it like salt in all kinds of different places and, and industries, places where he wants us to go and shine his light as we do our work. And listen, like Obadiah, we see other examples of people in the Bible who used their positions and their jobs to do God's work in a way that nobody else could in a way that they uniquely could because of that position, because of that job that they had. So for example, Joseph uses his job to save the lives of many people, including the entire nation of Israel. Obadiah here, he's able to rescue the lives of a hundred prophets of the Lord. Now listen, maybe there are some times when you think, man, you know, I really wish I could serve the Lord but I'm just stuck in this dumb job where I have to waste 40 hours a week, or I'm stuck in this school all these hours, or I'm stuck at home with these kids. Listen, you have opportunities in those places to do God's work in ways that nobody else can. Do you know that? God has put you in that place for such a time as this. You know, we, we tend to use the word vocation, right? The word vocation, when we use it, we kind of use it nowadays interchangeably with the word job or with the word occupation. So you might ask somebody, what's your job? Or you might say, hey, what's your vocation? And, and we tend to just think it's a, it's a synonym for having a job. But did you know that the word vocation is actually a uniquely Christian word? And the use of the word vocation to talk about our work, it came about primarily during the Reformation. The Reformers said, you know, when we do our work, we have a theology of work that says that when we do our work, we don't just do it for a paycheck. When we do our work, we see it not just as an occupation, we see it as a vocation, because you know what vocation means. It comes from the Latin word vocare, which means calling. The word vocation means calling, because as Christians, this is how we view our work. Not just as a thing that we do in order to pay the bills. No, we view our work as a calling from God to serve Him and serve others. And maybe you say, but 
Nick, you don't understand. I hate my job. Okay, listen, that doesn't mean that you're, you have to do this job for the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that you can't look for another job. But here's what it means. Right now, where you are, understand and embrace that God has you there for a purpose. There are ways that he wants to use you in that job, in that workplace. And there are ways in which he wants to use that job in your life in order to do something in you. So like Obadiah, guys, may God give us the grace that we would serve him and do his work in and through our jobs, okay? Let's continue in this sentence. As Elijah confronts King Ahab, we're challenged to consider the excuses which cripple us. The excuses which cripple us. That's what we're going to see as we, as we go through this next section. Verse 5, Ahab said to Obadiah, go throughout the land to all the springs of water and to the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. Listen, you can get a glimpse of just how devastating this drought and this famine must have been when you consider that the king himself and his top officials are out looking for little patches of grass, right? That means this is a top priority. That means that things are pretty severe. But think about this. By searching for grass, what is Ahab doing? Ahab is seeking relief from the famine, but he's not dealing with the cause of the famine. He's seeking relief, but he's not dealing with the cause. See, Ahab knows why this famine is taking place. Remember, Elijah showed up on his doorstep and said, it's not going to rain because you're worshiping Baal, because you're promoting the worship of Baal, because you're persecuting the people of God. He knows that he is the one who holds the key to turning off this drought and turning back on the rain, right? But but rather than acting in the best interests of the people, in a way, by repenting and turning to the Lord, and, and see, by doing that, he would end the suffering. But instead, Ahab stubbornly just persists in worshiping Baal. Why? Well, there are probably several reasons. And we'll talk about them in just a minute. But I'll tell you this. They're the same reasons for why you and I sometimes persist in doing things, even though we know that they're wrong. We'll get to that in just a second. But first, let's look at, all, look at how this whole thing went down. In verse 7, Elijah runs into Obadiah. Obadiah's out looking for grass. He's a believer, and he runs into Elijah, and he says, hey, it's you, Elijah. Verse 8, Elijah asks Obadiah. He says, go, get King Ahab. Bring him here, because I want to talk with him. In verse 9, Obadiah hears that, and he's like, what? Are you trying to get me killed? That's like a death sentence. You want me to go and tell, tell Ahab that you're here? He goes, look, if I go and tell him that you're here, and then by the time we come back, you've moved on and you're somewhere else, this guy wants to kill you so bad, he's going to be angry, and then he's going to want to kill me. So you're asking me to put my neck out for you. I need to know that you're going to be here when I get back. And so it says there in verse 16, um, or sorry, in verse 15, like Elijah promises Obadiah, I promise I'm not going anywhere. I'll stay right here until you get back with King Ahab. So verse 16, Obadiah goes. He brings King Ahab. Ahab comes. Verse 17, it says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab says to Elijah, You, you're the one who's caused all these problems around here. 
Is that true, guys? Is it Elijah who has caused all the problems there in Israel? No way. Guys, we know this, right? Ahab is the one who's responsible for this drought and this famine, 100%. And so look at what Elijah says in verse 18. Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have troubled Israel and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. See, God had actually promised, interestingly, many years before this, in the scriptures, God had promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that if Israel was disobedient and turned away from him, then he would send drought upon the land. But you know what? I don't really think Ahab is much of a Bible reader. Do you? Do you think he's like getting up at 6 a.m., doing some devotion times, reading Deuteronomy chapter 28? I kind of get the impression he doesn't read the Bible much. And so what we've got is Ahab claiming that this drought is Elijah's fault, and Elijah's claiming that this drought is Ahab's fault, and Elijah says Yahweh is God, but Ahab says that Baal is God. How can you ever solve a, a, a religious disagreement like this, right? How can you ever be, how can this be resolved? It's one guy's word against another guy's word. If only there was a way to settle this once and for all that would show everyone beyond the shadow of a doubt who is really right and who is really wrong and what is really going on here. Well, in verse 19, Elijah comes up with a solution. He says, now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. They're going to have a showdown. This is what they're going to have, right? It's going to be a contest. They're going to throw down. They're going to settle the issue. Who is the true God? Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? Let's find out. We're going to get to that story next week, guys. So you got to come back because it's one of the best stories in the Old Testament. You don't want to miss it. But listen, Ahab agrees. He's like, okay, let's do it. Let's go. So they gather the people, right? This, maybe not every individual in Israel, but this is heads of households, tribal leaders. There's probably tens of thousands of people on this mountain gathered in this place for this great showdown. Now you might ask, why Mount Carmel? Of all the places in Israel, why Mount Carmel? There's one very simple reason. Mount Carmel is the rainiest place in all of Israel. This is just a fact. To this day, Mount Carmel is a national park in Israel. It's a, a nature preserve. And here's why. Because it's the rainiest place in all of Israel. And the reason it's the rainy place is because it's situated on this ridge that juts out into the Mediterranean Sea. And so the, it just brings in this coastal breeze that causes it to rain on this mountain all year long. Last year, when we went to Israel with our group from church, we went up on Mount Carmel. And I got to tell you, when you go up there, it's misty. It's cool all the time. You know, it's, there's almost never a drought in Mount Carmel. It's humid up there. And on Mount Carmel, also, archaeologists have found remnants of pagan altars. And you know what that means. It, it, here's why. Mount Carmel was the central location. It was ground zero. It was home base for the worship of Baal in Israel. Baal's the god of rain. And of course, they're going to set up their main place of worship at the rainiest place in Israel. So Elijah, do you see what he's doing? He's saying, I'll go to your home turf. I'll do this on your ground, right? Like, I'll go there and I'll give you home field advantage. We'll play on your court in your stadium. You will go to you. 
But listen, before this showdown takes place, right? They've got everybody gathered. Look at what Elijah does. It says, verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people. Remember, tens of thousands of people gathered together. Elijah stands up in a high place, and he shouts out and cries out to the people, How long will you go on limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Again, this massive crowd. Elijah calls out, how long will you continue limping along? How long will you have divided hearts? How long will you be lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, neither here nor there, one foot in, one foot out? How long are you going to do this? I wonder if there are any of you here today, and this would be God's word to you today. You're not against Jesus, right? You just haven't really given your life over to him wholeheartedly, fully, in every area of your life. You're kind of, you know, halfway. You're kind of riding the fence, right? God was calling these people. And listen, God is calling us to pick a side and to go all in on that side. Listen, if the Lord is God, then follow him wholeheartedly in every area of your life. No more half measures. Look at where the half measures have gotten you. You're limping along. Picture that in your mind. Picture someone limping along. You know what happens when you're limping? You're using a lot of energy, but you're not getting very far. You're not making a lot of progress. Someone who's limping along, they're not going very far and they're not getting there very fast. What Elijah is pointing out to these people is that their excuses are crippling them. And guys, the same is true for you and for me. The excuses we make, they cripple us. They hold you back. They hold you back from all that God wants for you and all that God has for you in your life. And Elijah is inviting these people. He's inviting us, right? Let go of your excuses and wholeheartedly follow the Lord in every area of your life. And I want you to see how the people responded at the end of verse 21. Look at what it says. It says, And the people did not answer him a word. Here's Elijah crying out to this crowd of people, and nobody responds. Now listen, just like with Israel on that day, understand this. God is calling you, God is calling me to make a decision about Jesus can't ride the fence anymore, guys. If Jesus is Lord, you know what? He deserves your life. He deserves your devotion. He deserves all that you are. And you need to understand that to do what these people did in Israel that day, to not respond, is a response. To not decide is a decision. And it is a decision which, rather than helping you, it will continue to cripple you if you do it, if you persist in it. And I want to challenge you to honestly ask yourself this question. Are there any excuses that you are making which are crippling you, which are hindering you and holding you back from making progress in what God wants for you in your life? Listen, in this chapter, we see the crippling effects of excuses. But there are other things. We also see the crippling ex uh, effects of fear. Throughout this chapter, think about it. Why doesn't Ahab just repent when he knows that he's wrong, when he knows what's going on? A big part of it is fear. Listen, he's so committed at this point. He's sold everybody in Israel on this idea of worshiping Baal. What are they going to think of him if he goes back on it now? What if he comes and says, never mind, I was wrong. They won't respect him. He's afraid of that. And remember, a big part of this whole thing with Asherah and Baal and Ahab doing this, it had a lot to do with his wife, Jezebel. 
And listen, you know what they say, a happy wife is a happy life. And so Jezebel here, she's not going to be very happy if Ahab suddenly turns away from Baal and Asher and starts worshiping Yahweh. And so he's afraid. Now listen, there's other people afraid. The people on Mount Carmel who refuse to receive and respond to uh, Elijah's invitation. That's probably also out of fear. I mean, here's Ahab and Jezebel who like kill people who worship Yahweh. And they're supposed to like raise their hand and admit that they're a worshiper of Yahweh. Well, what if I'm the only one who responds? What are they going to do to me? If, if I do respond, what if none of my friends respond? What if I'm the only one? You know, the Bible contrasts two kinds of fear. The fear of man and the fear of God. And fear, in the sense that it talks about it, is being concerned with opinions, right? Concerned with what someone thinks, whether that's other people or whether that's God. Concerned with doing what somebody says, right? Whether that's other people or, or with God. Now listen to what the Bible says about these two kinds of fear. It says this, that fearing people or the fear of man is a trap. It leads to all kinds of problems. But the fear of God, on the other hand, it tells us, is a fountain of life which saves you from many traps. See, with Ahab and the people of Israel, the fear of man is crippling them. It's holding them back from doing what God called them to do. You know, in our society, uh, I see a lot of that. You see fear of commitment. Kind of like uh, Michael Scott. You know, you ever watch The Office, right? Michael Scott. There's this one time where uh, somebody asked Michael Scott, like, hey, are you going to come to this event that you're invited to? And Michael's response is, of course. I wouldn't miss it for the world unless something else comes up, in which case I definitely won't be there, right? Like, so that's, that's how many of us are. We have this fear of commitment. We want to keep our options open. We don't want to be tied down. We say maybe instead of saying yes. But listen, guys, that fear of commitment in your life is not helping you. It's holding you back. It's crippling you in so many ways. Another thing that cripples us, not only fear, not only excuses, but another thing that cripples us is pride. Part of the reason Ahab won't repent is because it's a pride issue, right? Like you don't want to look bad. You don't want to have to admit that you were wrong. But listen, friends, humility is a prerequisite for receiving grace. Humility is a prerequisite for receiving grace. James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Another thing that cripples us is shifting blame onto other people. We see that in this chapter. Another one is rationalizing our sins. That cripples us. Ahab does both those things in this chapter. He blames and he rationalizes. And you know, you can think, how do you rationalize killing children on an altar? Well, you can imagine, we're good at it, guys. We're super good at rationalizing things. He, he could have been like, hey, listen, yeah, I know we're killing kids on the altars, but listen, it's for the common good. And, and if we do it, then it'll rain, and that'll benefit everybody. And hey, you know what? If we don't do it, well, it's not going to rain, and then those kids are going to die anyway, so we might as well kill them, right? Like, you can rationalize your way into a lot of things. We can be so good at it. We can be so good at rationalizing and making excuses so we can justify our actions even when they're wrong. It's so much easier to do that, to blame others, to rationalize, than it is to really take inventory of where you're at. But listen, in order to receive forgiveness, you have to admit, you have to confess your sin. 1 John uh, chapter 1, it says this, If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
rationalizing our sins, blaming others. It just cripples us. It holds us back. So what do we do? What is the cure for our limp? Well, look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Instead of limping along, instead of being crippled, instead you lay aside those things in your life that are like dead weight, that slow you down, that hold you back so you can run. You know, a few years ago, I started running as a way to get exercise. And something I've noticed since then, as I'm out on trails and I see a lot of other people running, something I noticed that you can, you can oftentimes pick out the people who are new to running. And the reason you can pick them out is um, because they'll do this thing where they'll carry a bunch of stuff on them all the time when they're running, right? Like, and you're like, that person hasn't been doing this very much, right? Uh, so, and, and I got to tell you, I was the exact same way. You know, I'm out there running, like when I started, and I've got these like baggy clothes on. I've got like my giant phone in one pocket, is, like bouncing around. And I've got my key ring with every key that I own in my other pocket, and it's like jangling around. I got my wallet with everybody's business card in my other pocket, and I'm just, you know, I'm just full of stuff, wearing giant headphones you know, with like a big strap and I'm getting all tied up in it. And, and you know what? After a while, you learn that that stuff is not helpful when you're running, right? So it's, it's, it's just slowing you down and making you run worse. So it's better to just get rid of that stuff. And, and listen, God has a plan for your life. And I don't want you to just limp through it. I want you to be able to run free, make some progress, experience all that God has for you. Listen, guys, there are probably some things in your life and some things in my life. Habits, sins, excuses, fears, attitudes, which are just dead weight. They're not helping you. They're slowing you down. They're hindering you from making progress on the path that God has set before you. I want to encourage you. Lay those things aside. Cast them off. Leave them behind. And maybe you say, okay, that sounds cool but how do I do it? Well, that brings us to the final part of our sentence, which is this. As Elijah confronts King Ahab, we are challenged to consider the excuses which cripple us and the Savior who lived wholeheartedly for us. There in Hebrews chapter 12, right after that passage about laying aside the things that encumber us and, and running this race that's set before us, he tells us how. He says, by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised its shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it says this in verse 3, consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Friends, uh, the motivation to let go of our excuses, to let go of our fears, the motivation to put down your yes and wholeheartedly follow Jesus in every area of your life, you know where it comes from? It comes from looking at Jesus. It comes from the cross, from looking to the cross and considering what Jesus did for you, how he endured hostility from sinners, it says. He, the one person who lived a perfect life of obedience to God, he was beaten, he was nailed to a cross, not because of anything that he did, but because of what you did and what I did. He took the judgment on our behalf for the judgment that we deserve for the wrongs that we've done. And he did it, we're told, for the joy that was set before him. That was his motivation, the joy. You know what the joy was? It was you. 
It was me. It was the prospect of redeeming you and being with you forever. That was what motivated Jesus to endure the cross, his love for you, his desire to redeem you and be with you. And so for us, the motivation to choose today to lay aside fears and and uh, just the excuses that cripple us and hold us back, the the motivation to choose to follow the Lord with your whole heart in every area of your life, it comes from fixing your eyes on Jesus, seeing his love for you, considering what he's done for you, and knowing that he will provide you with all that you need and that the path he has laid out before you is good. So, Rather than limping along You've been listening anymore. to a message from May Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For race, more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. it leads to joy in the end and along the way. Amen? 